Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you would love for me to spend a little time teaching about when Jesus is going to return? Anybody have any interest in that? Yeah, just as I suspected. Well, uh, slight problem, I don't know, all right? It's a little hindrance to that. But this morning, we are going to start a new series uh, through the book of 2 Thessalonians and the book of 2 Thessalonians in multiple places talks about and teaches about the return of Jesus Christ. But instead of focusing on uh, when Christ will return, uh, 2 Thessalonians focuses on how should God's people think and how should we live in light of his appearing. I love that Line from the bumper video, did you catch that? In due time, our king will return. So go ahead and take your Bibles or devices and turn with me to 2 Thessalonians, which is near the middle of the New Testament. Uh, I would encourage you as we start this series to take notes in your sermon journal, your worship folder, or your YouVersion app as we teach through the book of 2 Thessalonians. And as has been often our practice, uh, we're going to teach verse by verse through uh, the book of 2 Thessalonians over a period of four weeks. And so verse by verse preaching is known as expository preaching. Uh, when you're preaching through a section of a book or a whole book, that's called systematic exposition. And when you're doing expository preaching, the key component is understanding the context. Because if you don't understand the context, there's no way you can understand the text. It is the foundation through which everything that you teach is built on. And just like a house, uh, if the foundation is bad or it's off, then everything you build on top of that is going to be off as well. So let me give you a little context here as we start the book of 2 Thessalonians. Apostle Paul is uh, writing to a group of Christians in the city of Thessalonica. This is actually the second book he's written uh, to them. And the city of Thessalonica was incredibly important in Paul's day. Uh, let me tell you why. Listen to what one commentary said describing the importance of Thessalonica. He said the city of Thessalonica had a strategic importance for the advancement of the gospel. And because it's a bustling port on the Aegean Sea and its prime location on the Ignatian Road, tens of thousands of sailors, travelers, and immigrants were constantly making their way in and out of the city. Uh, additionally, uh, its stable government, its bustling economy, and multicultural diversity make it an attractive place for Greeks, Romans, and Jews to live. With a, such a diverse population base, a thrivingly outward-focused, gospel-centered church had the potential to make a significant impact not only on the city, but also on the city and regions beyond. And so the Thessalonians are positioned to be have uh, what we would call a flagship church, just a church with incredible regional impact, and as thousands of people are coming in and out of that important city, as they're one to Christ and disciples, they're going out, they're going to take the gospel out. So this is a very strategic location in the early church, and they're having some impact. But as often as the case, any time that a church is having impact, there's always going to be spiritual opposition from Satan and his army. And so that comes often uh, in the form of persecution. It may come in the form of affliction. So along with that, uh, here in 2 Thessalonians, there's also some uh, false teachers stirring up uh, some false teaching about the timing of the Lord's return. Aren't you glad that's not a problem anymore, Right? So, but, and on top of that, there was a group of Christians who they were living off the resources of other people. 
And what they said was, Jesus is returning. Why waste our time with work? Right? That's a fair question. Listen, students, when your parents wake you up for school tomorrow, just say, the Lord's coming back. Why waste our time with school? Amen? Get busy for Jesus. And so all this is going on. And so as you can imagine, uh, that's not a winning combination. Affliction, persecution, false teaching, idleness that we'll talk about later in the book of 2 Thessalonians. But in the midst of all of that, Paul is still opening his letter with thankfulness. He's affirming them in so many ways, so many things he's thankful for despite the things that he's not excited about. And so let's start off reading verses 1 through 5 together. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Uh, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the affliction that you're enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also uh, suffering. And so Paul says, hey, I, there's some things going on that I need to clean up, some false teaching, some, some correction on idleness and some things like that. But listen, he's still filled with gratitude. He still looks at this church and he says, hey, you're, despite the affliction and persecution, your faith in God is actually increasing, which is a hard thing to do in the midst of affliction. He says, your love for one another is increasing. Uh, he says, you're remaining steadfast despite all that affliction and spiritual warfare. And let's just be honest. These are the attributes that all of us should be striving for. That when people look at our lives as individual pieces of the body of Christ or the church, those are things we would want people to say about us. In a culture set against the gospel, that people would say, hey, their, their faith actually is growing. Their love for one another is actually uh, increasing. Despite all the persecution and affliction, they're actually more resolved, more steadfast in their walk with Christ. So we would want those same things to be said about us in the midst of a culture Set against the gospel, but, but let's just be honest this morning. Sometimes when we're experiencing affliction or persecution, or if we're honest, even a delay in a prayer getting answered, uh, we tend to lose heart and lose hope very quickly, don't we? I do. I can get discouraged real fast, the same as any of you. Little affliction comes along, little persecution comes along, a little delay and answer. God not revolving his situation on my schedule. I can get real discouraged real fast, the same as you can. We can wonder, uh, where is God? Why is God allowing us to go through this? And, and listen, I'm just being totally honest this morning. If I got up here and said, hey, I'm, I'm at the place where I'm so spiritually mature that I never wrestle with doubts about God's timing or, or God's planning situations, I would totally be lying, all right? And I get paid to be spiritual, amen? And so we wrestle with all of those things, but what's true of the Thessalonians and also of us is that our trials and afflictions are actually proof that we belong to God. They're not the absence of God's activity. They're the stamp that God is at work and we belong to him. And as strange as that sounds, uh, suffering is the evidence that God loves us, not a sign 
that he's uh, abandoned us. Jesus said, hey, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they hated me, they will hate you. So, all right, so listen, uh, if you're listening, say amen. Salvation signs us up for suffering. Nobody said amen to that, all right, right? <laughs> and I'm just being honest. If I were God, I would have not have designed it that way, Right? I would have said happiness or joy, you know, right? That's what we're signing up for, good times, laughter, all those things. But the reality is what we see playing out in the scripture is that salvation signs us up for suffering. But here's the key. The suffering that comes along with salvation, it is not punitive. It is redemptive. That God uses that to draw us close to him. God uses that to fix our eyes on Jesus in the midst of our suffering. God uses that and puts us through the refiner's fire where God is at work in us if we don't run from God in bitterness. All right, so that's what's going on here uh, in the midst of this church in Thessalonica. Now, one last little tidbit before we jump in the meat of the text here today. Uh, But I want you to notice this. Both the beginning and the end of chapter 1. Talk about grace and peace and glorifying the name of Jesus Christ. Now, in my experience, even non-Christians, they're big fans of grace. They're big fans of peace. And so that's how the chapter opens. That's how it ends. But in the middle of all of that, in the same chapter, in the middle, the text speaks about the justice of God and the wrath of God. And those are not mutually exclusive concepts. And that's important because if we're honest, we can drift real quick into an unbalanced view of who God is. We can uh, all of a sudden uh, realize that, that God uh, tends to serve our purposes. We tend to emphasize that part of his nature that serves our purposes. And in doing so, whether we want to or not, we're remaking God in our image. Someone said, they, you know you've remade God in your image when God just so happens to not like the same people that you don't like. You know what I'm talking about? You've remade God in your image when God just so happens to extend grace to the very sins that you struggle with. That's probably a good indicator. You've remade God in your image. And so it paints a full picture, the love of God, the peace of God, the grace of God, but in the middle, the justice of God and the wrath of God, and all of that is the character of God. So let's celebrate all of it. And so all that was free, all right? So with that context in place, uh, how should we live as we await the return of of our king. How should we live as we await the return of our king, all right? First thing I would uh, tell you from the text is simply this, is be encouraged because justice will prevail. You ever feel like sometimes that life is getting more complicated? And I'm I'm just, I just wanna share, it's not in my notes, it's just in my heart though, all right? Whoever said that technology makes life easier is, they won't be in heaven, do you know that? Right? Like life just seems to get more and more complicated, more and more complex. Relationships get messier and messier. There seems to be less clarity about moral issues. So life just seems more and more complicated. But here's the good news. One of the things that is not complicated to understand is the justice of God. Justice is an attribute that flows out of God's uh, holiness because God is completely holy. Guess what? So is his uh, justice. He hates what is evil. He loves what is good. So because uh, God is just, uh, he, he balances the books. 
Whatever justice God executes, it's always right. Several years ago, we're in the car. I've told you a story before. I'm, my son's back there, and he's, he's younger, several years ago. And he says, Dad, he says, uh, this would even church, he says, Dad, what happens to the people that have never heard about Jesus? And I did what every good father did. I just turned the radio up, right? I'm like, bro, that's a little heavy, right? Like, I just got done preaching. Give me a break. And I said, hey, that's a good question, and people have wrestled with that for, you know, thousands of years. I said, but here's what we know. What we do know is whatever God does, it will be right, won't it? He said, I guess so, right? That's, what we, that's the justice of God, that God always does what is right. God is always just. He always balances the books correctly, and we love justice, do we not? When the bad guy gets what's coming to him, we love it, right? Serves him right. We love it when the, the faithful are rewarded. We love to see justice uh, playing out. And so what happens, though, uh, the bigger picture of justice that we need to see uh, is this. In, in our current culture, th there's a hyper-focus on the attributes of God that, that do not speak to God's justice. When they surveyed people out in culture, they asked them to give their description of what God was like, the most common uh, response was that God was a, a perfect match for Santa Claus. Right? He's just jolly, and he's just giving out you know, good things to, to children, just blessing people. Everybody likes him, right? And, and here's what's fascinating. Uh, in culture's view of God, no one is on the naughty list. Have you noticed that? There's some bad people. I'm not one of them. And so that's how culture describes. And there's been a downplaying on the justice of God in his uh, attributes. But, but here's what I'm gonna encourage you this morning. I'm gonna encourage you to celebrate God's justice with equal zeal as you do his love, and here's why. Eternal justice is the biblical solution for worldly injustice. It is the biblical solution for worldly uh, injustice. God's justice is the promise that every single injustice taking place will be dealt with by a just God. He will settle the books uh, in his justice. It's our guarantee that injustice does not go uh, unpunished. And so what happens is we, we look at that and we downplay that sometimes because that's not marketable. Nobody wants to hear about the wrath of God. Nobody wants to hear about the justice of God. But let me just tell you this. There's not a person in the world who if you asked them and said, hey, are you totally fine with injustice reigning? Are you totally fine with the wicked prospering, to quote the psalmist? Are you okay when you see all these injustices playing out in the world, going unpunished? Are, are you fine with that? And nobody would say, I think that's great. Like, I'm all for injustice, right? And nobody wants that, but the remedy for that uh, is the justice of God. That in the end, God always puts down wickedness and rebellion. Eternal justice is the biblical solution for worldly injustice, even though we live in a culture that wants to downplay the justice of God. For reasons I'm not sure of, uh, I've developed a fascination with stories of people being exonerated for crimes they did not commit through technology. It's just fascinating to me. And what's even fascinating is I'm the least technologically uh, inclined person you've ever met. But yet I'm just fascinated that, that when these people have been wrongfully convicted that somehow through uh, decades old DNA that they find that out and you have these stories where someone's exonerated. Uh, listen, my favorite ones 
are when they catch these people decades later and how they catch them is somehow these people have gone like Ancestry.com or, or some of those things and through all that, they find that out. And so uh, Tosh said one time, she said, let's sign up for that. I said, no, 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 be careful, right? Get pinned with a crime like that. <laughs> and listen, when that happens, like, I'm excited, right? I'm excited because I love the idea of justice. The idea that someone who's committed injustice thinks they got away from it, they think, huh, I wonder who I'm related to. Bam, slammer after that, right? I'm fascinated with all of that. I don't even understand how all of that works. The complexities of DNA testing and all those things, even though I'm fascinated with it. But listen, God's justice is not complex. It may not be There may not be a high appetite for it, but it's not complex. Look at what he says in verses 6 through 7. It says, since indeed God considers it just, this is right, God considers it just to repay those with affliction who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That's not hard to understand, right? What he says here is God will afflict those who afflict others. God will punish and put down people who habitually sin against uh, other people. And uh, also the text says, uh, in the means of justice, God will grant relief to the people who have been sinned against. That's not hard to understand. God will balance the books, and we don't have to worry about that. Now, so, so that's not hard to understand, but let me make some application here. Let me give you another reason you should celebrate the justice of God. Number one... Because that's an attribute of who God is. All right? God is a just God. You cannot remake God in your own image. You cannot focus on all the marketable attributes and leave these other attributes on the table because you don't think it's attractive to people who might be considering Christianity. So we should celebrate the justice of God because it's a part of his character. And anytime the character of God is magnified, God is glorified. So if you want to glorify God with your life, you should celebrate the just attribute of God's nature. All right? But here's the second reason. This is a little more practical. So one's theological, number two is practical. You should celebrate the justice of God, and here's why. It frees you from the all-consuming, anger-dominating desire for revenge. And you know what happens when you can't get revenge, you feel like justice is not being served, then, then what happens, what the book of Hebrews says, which a root of bitterness begins to spring up in your heart. And that bitterness will defile you and everyone else around you. You're drinking poison, waiting for the other person to die, and then getting mad when they're not dying. And so justice frees us up, the justice of God, from the all-consuming anger-dominating desire uh, for revenge. It frees us uh, from feeling like we need to execute justice. That somehow that, that God is slack and, and, and God's not just, and so somehow I gotta, I gotta take a hold of this situation and I gotta make sure that justice is executed. Listen, what that is, that's a form of unbelief. You know what that is? This is a Cunningham paraphrase. God can't handle his business. So I'm gonna help him out, Right? Listen to Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for evil. What about the people who've wronged me? Uh, they, you know what that, 
Greek, the Greek word is there for no one? You know what the Greek word is there? Nobody. Look it up. Repay no one evil for evil, but, or in contrast, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so what that means is not always possible, all right? If possible, so as far as it depends on you, you're not responsible for their response, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, to the contrary, now, let me just stop right here. You've heard me say this multiple times. If you've been in church for longer than a couple weeks, there's a chance that somewhere you've heard someone teach that Christians should live differently from the world. Anybody heard that concept before in any place? And if your hand's not raised, you're sleeping in church, all right? But most of the time what happens is we reduce that to external things, Right? Don't drink, smoke, or chew, and don't date the girls who do. You just, just fill that in. You'll be good. If I know you're holy, right? Don't go to movies. Don't go to restaurants that serve alcohol. I don't know where you get groceries from, by the way, if you, that's your rule. But, right, women can't wear, you know, pants. Like, all that. Just, and listen, that's, you're not holy. You're weird, all right? Weird's not attractive to anyone. I don't care what your mom told you. Not attractive. But. You want to live different from the world in the way that Scripture teaches? Verse 20 is it. What's the world say? Eye for an eye. Right? Dog eat dog. What's verse 20 say? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals uh, on his head. <laughs> some of you hear that, like, I'd love to drop some fire on that person, right? <laughs> Not what that means, by the way. I don't have time to teach you that. Look it up. Not what you think it is, okay? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Listen, loving our enemies is one of the ways we're different from the world. That's why culture war Christianity misses the mark. The people who are, uh, are opposed to Jesus, that they're our enemies, right? They're, listen, even if they were enemies, they're not. They're the mission field to be loved, not the enemy to be destroyed. But even if they were enemies, listen, the call is still to love them. And so in the midst of affliction and persecution that you're enduring, live with the confidence, listen, that God is a just God. It's God's job to execute justice, and your job is to love your enemies until he does, with the full confidence in the character of God that, in fact, he will. Now, let me add this important caveat, all right? This is super important, so listen. Love is not, when it says love your enemies, listen, love is not. Love is not the absence of accountability or consequences. It's not the same thing as trust. When love is asked for or required apart from accountability or consequences, that's the foundation of abuse. So love is not the absence of all of those things. It's not the same thing as trust. And, and here's, the, here's the reality. Sometimes justice comes swiftly and, and sometimes it doesn't. In the book of Exodus, God's people had just left Egypt after years of captivity. They're heading through the wilderness to the Red Sea. All of a sudden, the 
Pharaoh's army is chasing them down. Right behind them, the impassable Red Sea uh, is in front of them. The story goes, God parts the sea. They pass through the Red Sea on dry ground. But as the Egyptian army follows them in, pursue them to inflict harm on them, the sea comes back together and swallows them up in the midst of the sea. Now, if we're honest, that's what we want, right? You ever heard you should pray the Psalms as a kind of way to connect with God? Like, listen, we're angry, you know what Psalm I'm praying? The psalmist said this, break their teeth, oh God. I've prayed that before, right? <laughs> but it's in God's timing. Sometimes God enacts his justice in the present. Sometimes we're going to have to wait for God's justice to be displayed. But listen, God is a just God. Sin will always be punished. That's what the end of verse 7 uh, reveals to us. Look at verse 7. God's justice will be on full display. What does verse 7 say? When the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. What's he saying? Listen, the first time when Jesus came, a little calmer. The second time when he comes, he's coming with a sword. The second coming of Christ, is his second coming, is about justice being served. He's coming to judge and execute justice in his second coming. And we live with a full confidence of that day and the justice of God will be served. Someone much smarter than me said this, we have to reconcile and have confidence in the fact that God doesn't settle all of his accounts at the end of the month. God is playing the long game. And that game will come to a climactic conclusion when Jesus comes in judgment. Now, if you're like me, the most natural question is this, uh, how does that play out? Like, I like practical Bible teaching, right? Like, teach me character of God, teach me theology, teach me all those things. But, but I always wonder, like, how does that play out? Well, here's the good news. The text tells us. Right? And uh, he says, basically, it's going to play out differently for different camps of people. Let me be real clear this morning. There's only two camps of people in the room. There's those who are saved and those who are not. There's, there's no Switzerland uh, with Jesus. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. You're either dead in your trespasses and sins or you've been born again. You're either guilty and condemned or you're guilty uh, but pardoned. You're either in spiritual darkness or you've been redeemed by the light of the world. Jesus Christ, you're either headed for heaven or hell and there is no in between. And so the text gives us two forms of justice depending on which camp that you're in this morning. And the first thing we see in the passage is this, is that God's justice is fearful for the unrepentant. Now, we have to be honest. When it comes to the doctrine of hell, the pendulum has swung wildly over the last few decades. I remember early on in, in ministry, uh, someone asked me, they said, what kind of church do you pastor? I said, I pastor Baptist church. And they literally said, ooh, angry. I was like, what? Look at me. I'm not angry. Right? I met someone this weekend. And the first thing they said after introducing themselves said, you're a Baptist. I said, why are you asking? Right? I just, it just came out right. Because that's the idea is that sometimes, let's, let's, let's just do a little survey here, real scientific, all right? If you grew up in church, you're going to church 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago in a, in a Baptist church, if you ever heard an angry, fear-mongering sermon, would you just raise your hand? Yeah, and if your hand's not raised, that's what's wrong with you, amen? <laughs> Nobody ever got up on Sunday and said, you're going to hell if you don't straighten up, right? And so, 
It was fear-mongering, right? You know, there was a little bit of that going on. There's a little bit of those kind of things. But let's just be honest. Now we've just, now we've given God a marketing makeover, and we're scared to even talk about the doctrine of hell. But let me just be real clear. No one spoke about hell more in the Bible than Jesus. And Jesus actually spoke about hell more than he did about heaven. And so while we want to avoid fear-mongering, make no mistake, listen, this may be old-school preaching, but listen, there's still a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. The book of Jude says this, that some were saved from the fire by fear. So those who are against God and his people, justice is coming. This should instill comfort in a Christian that, that all this injustice, all this sinning, all this, like, God will deal with that, uh, but it also should instill some fear uh, in the non-believer. Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, Jesus will be revealed with his mighty angels. In verse 8, listen to this description. Now, listen, I know this. I've been doing this long enough, I know. Like, some of you like, you like the first coming of Jesus, right? You like eight pounds, six ounce, infant baby Jesus, right? Like, tame, cuddly, Right? When he comes the second time, here's the description. Verse 8. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not, listen to this, obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just stop here for a second. What he does not say is inflicting vengeance on those who do not know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he use the word obey? Because obedience is the proof of genuine conversion. A.W. Tozer said years ago, the Lord will not save those whom he cannot command. So how do you know a person is a truly converted follower of Christ? There's a pattern, not perfection, but there's a pattern of obedience in their life. Those who do not obey the gospel, verse 8, verse 9, listen to that. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know this. Flaming fire, inflicting vengeance, suffering punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Listen, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know this. Nobody should desire that. So I got all kinds of philosophical and theological things about hell and you know, how's a place of fire, but it's a place where the worm dies not, and how's a place of outer darkness, but then it's a lake of fire. Like, how's this all reconcile? How's this all play? Listen, you, you can wrestle with all those things, but can I just tell you, nobody wants to go to the smoking section. Amen? But he says that's, that's what's coming for those who are unrepentant. Paul describes the justice of God and those who oppose him fearful and final. Now, let me just stop right here because here's what I've learned over the years. I've met lots of people who say, I'm not opposed to God. Like, I'm not actively campaigning against God. I wouldn't call myself a Christian, but I'm not there like cut the heads off of chickens and run around the yard naked, right? Which I don't know, if, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> That's not in my notes. But apparently it came out of my mouth, that means it's in my heart, so I don't know what that means. Just here's what I'm asking. Don't look for them on Ancestry.com 
and don't drive by my house at night. You don't know what you're going to see, all right? <laughs> wow. All right. But, but I also want you to notice the increase in intensity of how Paul describes God's judgment. Look, look at the words he uses, progressive. Affliction, vengeance, destruction. And for some of you here, if you've yet to cross the line of faith, you're considering Christianity, you're like, I, I don't, I have, a, I have a problem with that. That God delights in that, that that's what, that, that excites God? Not at all. Listen to Ezekiel 33, 11. It says this, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But yet justice has to be served. Why? Because God is a just God. And he says it won't just be devastating, it'll be final, no second chances. The Bible says this in the book of Hebrews, it's appointed on a man once to die, and after this, the judgment. There is no purgatory, there's no lighting of candles for people who have gone on, there's no intercessory prayer. Listen, after this, the judgment comes is what he says. It is permanent. And so if you're sitting here saying, hey, I'm just, I'm kind of a skeptic, and I'm going to, I'm going to wait and see what happens when I die, and, and when all this plays out, I'm going to wait and see if this is real before deciding. Here's what the Bible says, your decision will have already been made. Some of you are sports fans. Here's a scenario. Remember a game where team is surging, and the clock is winding out, and then there, there's one last play, and, and, or you think there's one last play, right, maybe two, Kind of get near the end, and all of a sudden they make this drive, and they come out, you're like, they score, and they didn't score, and then all of a sudden they come out with the, you know, the measure, and they're like, you know, they're this short. Oh, no, right, it's my favorite team. And then you look up, and the clock says, zero. Zero. And you realize it's over, and that's a sick feeling, right? Ask anyone who's a Cleveland Browns fan. But on a serious note, this is what will become of anyone and everyone who does not repent of their sin and trust Jesus for salvation. Theologian John Phillips describes the horrors of final judgment like this. He said, the wicked then at the Lord's return will be handed over to eternal ruin. Who can imagine the horrors that will accompany the dissolution of their personality, the gnawings of conscience, the torments of memory, the anguish of guilt, and the terrible knowledge that their doom is deserved hopeless and unending. And the worst part about hell, there's all kinds of debate about hell. Listen, the worst part about hell is the absence of the presence of God. And so hell is God's promise that justice will be served. And I don't know about you, but listen, I don't want to worship a God who lets injustice go unpunished. Where injustice has the final word, all right? So that's the bad news. It's the bad news. But here's the good news, and it's actually Great news, which is this, God's justice is hopeful for the redeemed. I'm just going to touch on this briefly for the sake of time, to scratch the surface, but look at verses 10 through 12 with me. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that 
the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, listen, everybody look up here. You should highlight these verses and know where they are so that you can meditate on them on your hardest days, reminding you that this is how your story will end. That you're in the middle of the chapter of the story that God is writing in your life, but this is how it will end. That Jesus Christ will appear and you will be amazed is what the text says. You should be eagerly awaiting the return of our king. By the way, that's the right word to describe when you think about the Lord's appearing. Eagerness, right? You ever, you ever, let's, this happens every so often when Christians say, hey, don't do fill in the blank because if you do that, that's going to usher in the end of the world. Don't do that. Listen, make a note right now. Anytime someone says don't do fill in the blank because that's going to usher in the end of the world, that's the very thing you should be doing. And if I don't want to do that, what that says is this, I'm not eager for his appearing. Like the little boy, the guy's preaching and in this sermon, the evangelist gives a testimony and says, hey, if you want to go to heaven, raise your hand. If you want to go to heaven, raise your hand. If you want to go to heaven, raise your hand. Come on, come on, come on, come on. People getting saved, people getting saved, revival meeting. The little boy won't raise his hand, won't raise his hand. And finally, the guy just looks down and says, little boy, don't you want to go to heaven? The little boy says, I do, but the way you're talking, I thought you're loading up a bus tonight. Like, I'm not ready, right? That's how some of us think about the Lord's appearing. Well, I want the Lord to come back, but not before I see my kids graduate or, or walk them down the aisle or, or fill in the blank. Listen, you'll be astonished when he does. And if we're not excited about the Lord's return, we're not eager about that, that means this temporary world has captured too much of the affections of our hearts. I don't have time to go in this, but let me just tell you this. The Bible describes five crowns of reward in the Bible. There's five crowns of, of reward. I don't have time to talk through all of them, what you do with them, all that kind of stuff. So, but let me just tell you that one of them, listen to the description of one of those crowns of reward. 2 Timothy chapter, eight, or chapter 4, verse 8. Here's what it says. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. You'll be rewarded for that eagerness. Why should I be hopeful and eager? we got to hurry, so I'm going to start talking fast, all right? Two things. i got a lot in here to get out, right? Two things. Number one, there will be relief from affliction finally. Go back to verse 7. What's he say? That he'll grant relief at his return. He'll grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When? When the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. There'll be relief finally and fully from affliction. And that alone should make us eager for his return. But the second truth here in this passage, and I chose the most impressive theological language I could think of, is this. You're going to be blown away. Look at verse 10 and we're done. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, here it is, and to be marveled at among all who believed because our testimony to you is believed that phrase to be marveled at literally in original language it means to be astonished 
to be in awe. You're going to be blown away in that moment. Blown away in that moment. There's no question about it. The only question that remains is this. When you think of Jesus' return, if you knew he was coming back today, would you be fearful or would you be eager? Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, if the honest answer of your heart is when I think about Jesus coming back, I'm fearful. I don't have a right standing before God, or I'm not sure if I do. And so when I think about the Lord's return, if it were today, I'd be afraid, not eager. Listen, if that's you here this morning, and God is pressing into you, letting you know that you need to receive Christ. That you need to be saved today. Because you could come in here fearful about the return of Jesus and his judgment, but you can receive Christ today for forgiveness of your sins, and you can leave today eager and hopeful for his return. And so right now, if that describes you, would you pray right now and receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Would you just confess that you're a sinner compared to Jesus? Would you declare that you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, his payment for your sins was buried, and rose the third day? And today, would you express a desire to repent or turn from your sin? And receive Jesus Christ by faith. Would you do that today? You don't have to leave here fearful of the Lord's return in judgment. You can leave here today forgiven, redeemed, saved, and hopeful that Jesus is coming back and injustice will be put down. Father, we're grateful. That despite all the injustice we see playing out in the world around us, and it is disheartening at times, abuse, neglect, it's discouraging. But Father, we come to church every week to get a clear picture of what's true. And what is true is that you are a just God and all that injustice will be dealt with. You'll settle all those accounts the right way. And so God, even in the midst of a world filled with injustice, we can still worship and celebrate that we serve a just king who is good and faithful and just. And Lord, for all of those of us who've been redeemed, God, may the truth of your coming judgment motivate us to share the gospel with urgency for those who have yet received Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us to walk out of here this week 
as we see injustice play out in big and small ways in our world, every time we see it, help us to praise your name, to thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do, to celebrate your character, that in the end, justice will win. We rejoice in that, Lord, because we can. Amen.